0: Four. We will have the text up on the screen if you don't uh, have a copy of God's Word with you today. We are in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to uh, 37. We're in a seven week sermon series called Transformed Together. And we're exploring the book of Acts and we're exploring the first church there in Jerusalem. Sorry, right, guys, don't worry about it. That happens. Uh, We're exploring that first church in Jerusalem and discovering and discerning how this first church was transformed together through what Jesus was doing in their life and in their community. So let's pray and let's give this time to God and see what he does in our hearts today. Dear Jesus, we surrender to you. We commit to your plan and your process of discipleship in us as individuals and in us as a family. We ask that you would ordain this moment. You'd speak to us today, that your truth would be unleashed, that your Holy Spirit would reign supreme in this service, and that this would be an act of worship. That as I preach, it is an act of worship to you. That as we listen, it is an act of worship to you. That as we respond to the authority of scripture, it is an act of worship to you because everything that we are is yours. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. So as I said, we've been in this seven-week series exploring how the first church, it's not just the early church, this is the first ever church, the very first one, okay? People have like First Presbyterian Church or First Baptist Church or different like first church names. This was the first church, period. There was no competition. This was the first church ever. You could call it the first church of Jerusalem, but it was really just the first church, It was started by these 11 guys who had walked and talked with Jesus. They'd hung out with him for three years. They were his disciples. They had learned his teachings. And over the course of three years, they had sought to imitate his behaviors, to become more like Jesus Christ. And now they are taking it to the next level. They are seeking to make more disciples of Jesus. They are seeking as this first initial family, this First church to be transformed together and the story of the book of acts is how Jesus who has gone back to heaven sends his Holy spirit to empower the church to continue the story of Jesus. And what we see is a group of people who are the, the most unlikeliest of heroes transform the Roman empire as they become transformed together. Now, uh, let me kind of give you a, a little backdrop to why why we are doing this. We talk a lot about discipleship in at Mosaic, we talk about discipleship in the church in general. But here's what happens a lot of times. We say, we know that Jesus wants us to make disciples. So what we are gonna do is, is how many of you have ever played like darts? Anybody played darts? Alright? And so there's a bullseye on the wall, right? And you, you throw the dart at the bullseye. And what do you what do you want to hit? You want to hit dead center right? That's how you win. You try not to hit Kevin as he's running in the line of fire. Okay? But here's what, here's what frequently happens in churches and in faith communities. We say, okay, we've got to make disciples. We're not exactly sure what that means, but we're going to throw a dart at the wall. There's no bullseye up there though. We just throw it and it lands over here, over by the clock. And so then we're like, we go over here and we draw a bullseye. And we're like, look, we made a disciple. It's dead in the center. We hit the bullseye. And we define discipleship after the fact. When in reality, the scripture is very clear. And I think the book of Acts gives us a perfect example of what the bullseye is supposed to look like. So with this sermon series, this idea of being transformed together, we are trying to define what the end product looks like. We are trying to define what the bullseye is so that we can know this is what we are moving towards. And maybe sometimes we're closer to the center, sometimes maybe we're closer off to the side, but at least we know where we're going. To use the imagery of a subway, if you just get out at Grand Central and you're like, oh yeah, I meant to come to Grand Central anyway, um, that doesn't really help anything, unless of course you were actually planning to go to Grand Central. So what we're trying to do is very clearly define what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and how we can engage in this process of being transformed together. So the last couple of weeks we've done that by exploring a couple of key areas from this first church that they grew in as disciples because we've identified six things that we believe every follower of Jesus should be growing in. You may not be a 10 out of 10, but hopefully you're moving in the right direction. That's the goal of the Christian life is taking the next step of that spiritual journey. So the last couple of weeks we've talked about devotion. Uh, Kevin preached about our prayer life, our devotion, our communion with Jesus Christ. And then last week we talked about family. We talked about this idea that God has knit us together into a community and that we are to live in such a way that we take care of one another. And then the third thing that we're talking about today is stewardship. Stewardship, which quite simply is obeying Jesus's commands about money. Now, I know everybody instinctively tenses up when a preacher starts talking about money, because we've all been burned. We've seen the televangelists on TV who are frankly con artists, who say, you send in $100 to to my TV station, you will never have any health problems again, and God will make you rich, and all of this stuff, and, and then they drive around in Cadillacs or have their own uh, private jets, if you know who I'm talking about. Um, and, and they live large at the expense of God's people. So instinctively, when we hear a preacher broach the issue of money, we get a little nervous. I understand. I get a little nervous when I hear those sermons too. But now I'm the guy up here who has a responsibility to say, well, we have to consider all that Jesus said. And he said a whole lot of stuff about money. And we believe that following Jesus's commands about money is a crucial indicator of where our heart is. That's why the title of my sermon today is, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Because Jesus said in the sermon on the Mount, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I think Jesus would be able to walk in today and instinctively know where your heart is. He'd say, well, I see. I know what you spend your money on. So I know exactly where your heart is. He'd look at me and he'd say, Stephen, I see every month that you spend money on books. I know where your treasure is. It's wrapped up in those books, landing the bookshelf, or the books that you've downloaded on your Kindle app. This is where your treasure is. Maybe for you, I know there's a lot of foodies in the church. Maybe your treasure is in eating out. Or maybe maybe your heart is wrapped up in buying stuff for your home, or I don't know what it is. But Jesus said there is a direct correlation between how we spend our money and the condition of our heart. So the big idea of this sermon If you take anything away at all, take away this. Stewardship is about heart transformation. Jesus is really not that interested in your money, but he's interested in your heart. And he knows that stewardship is about heart transformation. So as we look at this particular text, where we see the early church living a radical lifestyle when it comes to money, it's not about their money. It's about their heart and how they are transformed together as they choose to make Jesus the Lord of every area of their life, including their finances. Before we dive into the text, I want to share a quote from a guy named Brian Laritz. Brian said, Giving to God does not just remove money from our pockets, but it expels idols from our hearts. You say that again. Giving to God does not just remove money from our pockets, but it expels idols from our hearts. Stewardship. The idea of surrendering our money to Jesus and being all in for God and for his coming kingdom, including even financially, is not about the money because God's, God's rich. Bible says he created the world, he owns the world, he owns everything that's in the world. God has more money than anybody. He doesn't need what you have to offer. But the issue with giving, the issue with surrendering our finances to Jesus is that when we give, it's not about emptying our pockets of money, but it's about expelling the idols of our heart. That thing that we loved more than Jesus, you see, and it goes back to this issue of heart transformation, that Jesus is after my heart. And so when he comes and he asks me to give, it's not about having less money at the end of the month. It's about him saying, I want you to take the next step in your spiritual journey. And I know the only way that you can do that is by surrendering your heart to me, by kicking those idols out of the throne room of your life. So as we look at this text, I want you to look at it with this quote in the back of your minds. What idols have crowded out Jesus Christ in my heart? And how would obeying Jesus's commands about stewardship serve to expel these idols from my heart? Let's look at verse 32 of Acts chapter four. We're gonna cover verses 32 to 37. I should have the verses up on the screen. Uh, reading from the Holman Standard Version. Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, he sold a field that he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, what you have in this passage is this first church continuing to live by a countercultural uh, perspective, a countercultural paradigm. The city of Jerusalem, just like New York City, just like Birmingham, just like everywhere, the city of Jerusalem back then was a pretty materialistic city. By that, I mean that they focused on their stuff. Now, the stuff that they had back then was different than the stuff that we have now. They probably got excited over their donkey. You get excited over your iPad, right? Different stuff but the same heart issues. It was a city characterized by what stuff do I have? What stuff do I own? What stuff do I possess? It's all about my stuff. You guys are kind of quiet, you all right? All right. But there was this, this group of people who had been totally changed, totally transformed by this carpenter who lived in Nazareth And he he lived for three years, did some incredible things, died on a cross, rose from the dead, went back to heaven, and now all of a sudden, this group of, of, at this point, several thousand people are living this incredible lifestyle like nothing Jerusalem has ever seen. We explored uh, last week how they were living like a family, how they were laying down their lives for one another, how they were, they were meeting daily to encourage one another and to challenge one another in their Christian faith, how they were sold out for Jesus in every aspect of their lives. This text, a couple of chapters later, fleshes out something that, was, that we mentioned last week, this radical generosity, this spirit of giving. In fact, it's characterized by this guy named Joseph. It says he's a Levite and a Cypriot by birth. So he's this guy from this Mediterranean island, right? And uh, uh, he's also called Barnabas, which is his more common name throughout the book of Acts. Barnabas is this guy from this Mediterranean island and he happens to be living in Jerusalem and he happens to be part of this church. And he sets the example. He owns a field. So apparently he's, he's got some money. I don't know if he's middle class or upper class, but he's at least, he's got stuff. And before you rush to say, oh, well, he was probably rich. So he's, he's got stuff, and I don't have stuff. We all have stuff. Every single one of us in here, we've got stuff. Barnabas says, there are folks in the family of God who are needy. How about I sell my field? How about I sell my stuff to care for the vulnerable in our community? Now, Barnabas wasn't the only one doing it. He's the only one mentioned by name in this passage, but apparently the whole church is doing this. They're living this radical lifestyle. They really are operating under this idea that Jesus is Lord. In fact, there was this very countercultural claim that they would say, it was very common in the Roman Empire. In the first century, you had to say Caesar Curios. That means that Caesar is Lord, okay? And the Romans permitted everybody to maintain their own religion. They would conquer all of these different countries, right? And you could keep your own religion, but you had to add one religion to it. You also had to worship the emperor. You had to say that Caesar is Lord. But there was this problem. The Christians were not content to worship two gods. The Christians were not content to say that there were two lords, that there were two masters. They operated under the premise that Jesus was Curios, that Jesus was their Lord. Caesar's image may have been stamped on that coin, but that coin belonged to Jesus and they knew it. And so they live by a countercultural way of life that included everything, including their money. So there are folks in their family, folks in their community who are hurting. And so people are selling their stuff, taking it to the leaders of the church and saying, hey, bro, can you help that person over there? I see they, ha- they have a need. Can you bless them? Can you take care of them? I think this passage shows us two reasons why we give. We pass the, uh, the offering plate every Sunday, right? Have you ever wondered why we do that? Maybe it's to keep the lights on. I always say it's not to keep the lights on or to pay the bills. Really none of those reasons are why we do it. There are two reasons from this passage. These are probably not the only two reasons, but there are two reasons from this passage that tell us why we give. Same two reasons that this first church gave. First of all, we give because we have a relationship with one another. We give because we have a relationship with one another. Look at verse 32. It says, The large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. So what you've got is this very radical lifestyle where people are like, you know what? You need, you need my stuff more than I need my stuff. So I'm just going to sell it. I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to take care of you. Why? Were they walking down the street and doing this to total random strangers? No. Although there would certainly be nothing wrong with that. This is not, this is not um, generosity to, to Jerusalem in general. This is generosity within the family. We can tell from verse 32 that there's a, a number of, of ways that this is fleshed out. It says there was this large group. The, the writer of the book of Acts is Luke. Luke was a very meticulous guy. He was a doctor. He was a historian. And he's, he's got these meticulous records. He knows that there is a clearly definable large group of people that constitute this first church. He's like, there are, there are clear boundary lines. There's this group of people. There's this family. There's this church. There's these people that are inside of this, this new group, this family. They're in relationship with one another. It's a group of people who have believed. What did they believe? They have believed in Jesus. They have believed in his death. They have believed in his burial. They have believed in his resurrection. They believe that he's coming again. And because of this, these beliefs have changed their lives. So it's a group of those who have believed, but it's, it's also a group of those who are united. It says that they're of one heart and one mind. They're of one heart and one mind. Now, it's hard to get a group of people together who have one heart and one mind. Is that, is that fair to say, right? So a lot of times people gather up for, for Thanksgiving, just coming up uh, here in a few days, right? And, uh, you know, it's always safe to say when you, when you sit around at Thanksgiving, you probably shouldn't talk about politics or religion because, you know, you're bringing together a diverse group of people and you may all be family, but you got like 15 different views, 15 different opinions. We know how hard it is to get a group of people under one roof who are united, who have the same heart, the same mind, the same values, the same convictions. But there was a group of several thousand people in this first church who did just that. It was a large group of those who believed and they were of one heart and mind. They were characterized by unity. This is an answer to Jesus' prayer. He prayed in John 17 before he died and went back to heaven. He prayed, God, I pray that my future disciples would be as one as we are one. He's, He's speaking of this oneness that exists in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. That's pretty one. It doesn't get more united than that. And Jesus prayed that his future disciples would be that united, that they would be that one And God, the Father, answers Jesus' prayer in this passage so that this large group of those who believed, they were of one heart and one mind. There's several thousand people running around Jerusalem and they're not necessarily agreeing on everything. I don't think that's the idea of unity. It's not uniformity, it's unity. They love each other even when they disagree. They love each other no matter what. They are for one another and they have decided that the group Matters more than the individual. That's the essence of this family. So this large group of those who believe they were of one heart and one mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own. Sometimes people look at this and they say, well, the first church was communist. Um, That's a very, very common view. I don't think that this is the same thing as communism because the next chapter, in fact, teaches us that this was completely voluntary. So whereas in a communist state, the government forcibly takes goods from you and then gives them to somebody else, this is something totally different. In fact, I think the idea of forcibly taking it from you totally undercuts the point of radical generosity. These people don't have to be told by anybody to give to their brothers and sisters in the faith. They are family. They have a relationship with one another. Therefore, this is what they do because family is who they are. You see how this builds upon the idea that we were talking about last week? Because we are in relationship with one another, we give. We give because Jesus has united us and made us one. We give because we are believers. We give because the group is more important than the individual. There's a second reason in this text why we give. We give because we imitate our redeemer. We give because we imitate our redeemer. Look at verse 33. It says, "The apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on all of them." Now, I'll be honest, this verse totally stumped me. Not the meaning of the verse, but the placement of the verse. Every single verse in this passage is talking about money. It's talking about giving, and then right in the middle, it's talking about the gospel. It's talking about the good news. It's talking about how the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I have to think long and hard about this. Why did Luke think that this was important? To understand that this church was centered upon this good news. Well, it's because it's the good news that compels us to give. We give because we are imitating our Redeemer. The early church was, was proclaiming this message, this good news. They were living in the light of the good news, and the good news was simply this. Even though we're not good enough to save ourselves, even though we're not good enough to earn our way into heaven, Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross as a, as a common criminal condemned by the Roman Empire, condemned by the Jewish state, and he died in our place and bore the wrath of Almighty God, was judged in my place, but then he rose from the dead. He was dead, but now he's not dead. And he's gone back to heaven and he offers us a free gift of eternal life, one that we can't earn, one that we can't buy, one that we'll never deserve. It's unconditional grace. He says, hey, it's yours for the taking. This was the good news that totally transformed this family. This was the good news that shaped the contours of their faith. The apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were good news kind of people. They were resurrection kind of people. They were living in the light of the fact that Jesus was alive when you understand the good news, when you understand what your redeemer has done, the only possible response is worship and it's giving. Now, I've used the word redeemer very intentionally. The idea that's mentioned throughout the scriptures of redemption, it carries the idea of, of, a, of a slave auction. Of someone who, who is a slave, they can't liberate themselves, they can't free themselves They need to be set free by an outside party. But they don't have the money. They they can't free themselves. They can't take care of themselves. But then a redeemer shows up. Someone who has all the resources you could ever imagine. And he sets them free from the power of sin. He sets them free from the, the curse that is upon them. That's what Jesus did for us. He offered us redemption. He set us free, but there was a cost cost was his own life. That's the point of the cross is that Jesus was our redeemer on the cross. If you want to know what giving means, look at the cross. If you want to know what giving is, look to Good Friday. There's many things that we could look to in the the world to get inspiration for giving and for generosity. My birthday was a couple of weeks ago, and Sonya asked Malia what she wanted to give Daddy, and um, she uh, she said, "I want to give him my pink lollipop because, in her mind, that was the best thing that she had." And she was so excited; wanted to give it to me like three or four days early. She told me all about it. It didn't matter to her that it was just a lollipop. And you know what? It certainly didn't matter to me. It's one of the best presents I've ever gotten. When she was so excited and she comes up to me with this pink lollipop and I didn't know what to do with it. I took one lick and then I said, honey, would you like it? She said, yes. And I gave it to her and she ate it and she enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it watching her enjoy it. You see, she understood in that moment with childlike simplicity what giving was. She gave her best. She gave her all, kind of like Jesus on the cross, who gave us his all. He laid down his life. And so this church, these these initial followers of Jesus, this, this band of brothers and sisters who are trying to figure it all out in this ancient city of Jerusalem, they don't know everything that there is to know, but they do know who they need to imitate. They imitate this one who showed them what giving was. They saw someone who laid down his life, who descended from heaven, who was God in the flesh, who was our substitute on the cross. Someone who did what we could never do. They saw what giving was. And so it was only natural that they would imitate him because isn't that a part of discipleship? Imitate Jesus's behavior. They saw him give. And this church decided we are going to be people characterized by this, by this resurrection news, by this redemption news. We are going to be people who are shaped by the gospel. We are going to be people who live in the light of this good news. And because we have seen Jesus give, we will give generously, radically, sacrificially. I don't think the apostles were standing there being like, hey, did you give? Did you give? They didn't have to. Because when we are followers of Jesus, when we are imitating him, this just comes naturally. Because when, leading out of the first point, if we are family, this is who we are. So giving is what we do. Because we imitate our redeemer. We imitate our redeemer. The apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. I think this idea is important that God's grace was upon the church A lot of times we don't wanna give, we don't wanna be generous, we don't wanna be sacrificial with our money and it takes the grace of God. Just as in any area of the Christian life, I can't possibly summon up the willpower to do the right thing on my own. I need the Holy Spirit to shower me with his grace so that I can choose to give. I can choose to expel that idol from my heart and say that thing that I valued more than Jesus, needs to be kicked out of my heart as I choose to give. I'd like to ask Kevin to come up here to share with you his story. Go ahead and come on up, Kevin. One of the things that we know is that as we are transformed together, God does a work in our hearts and in our lives. And Kevin has shared with me how God is working in his life. Can we make sure this one is on? I don't know if I need to turn it on. Um... And uh, I have asked him to share with you guys how God is at work in his life, specifically regarding this issue of being generous with our
1: money. So, Kevin? Hello. Uh, Sneak attack, I'm here. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, Stephen asked me to kind of give a quick testimony about this. And uh, to be be quite frank, I'll tell you, uh, giving is hard, right? Like, I'm sure all of you guys can relate to this, the fact that, yeah, giving financially is hard. Um, just, I know that my context is different from you guys, but, um, i just graduated from undergrad, and so I was very much, depending on my parents, they helped me out a lot, and because I'm now post-grad and really transitioned to grad school and working, my, my parents and I had a mutual agreement that I should become more and more financially independent, right? Which is good, I, I, I want it to be. But hey, it's hard, right? It's hard, like, you, you start making the money, and I'm like, working, like, double shifts at my job, like, wow, this is my hard-earned money, and I wasn't thinking, like, oh, I want to use this to... I do bad things, right? I wanted to pay tuition. I wanted to bless my missional family, all kinds of stuff. So even with good reasons, I wanted to hold my money and really use it for, quote, unquote, good reasons, right? And I was really struggling with tithing and all this kind of stuff. And Stephen was talking to me about this. And I was, yeah, I want to say this is not some kind of easy thing, right? Um, this is a struggle that I, I know that we all struggle with, paying the bills, rent, all kinds of stuff. Um, and my story is different from you guys. And, but I think one form of encouragement I want to really give you guys is, um, actually, I want to use the story that you, you talked about with Malia. Um, I thought that was really touching just because Malia's so cute, right? <laughs> she's so funny. I think so. <laughs> um, and just the fact that when we think about that pink lollipop that Malia had,
0: that's not her
1: pink lollipop. Let's real, right? Who, who bought that pink lollipop? Uh, Steven and Sonia did, right? They gave it to her, right? But she had the compassion and the love to give it back. And for, for a long time, I thought, man, I made this hard-earned money. I want to use it to do good things like seminary tuition. Like, this is my money, right? This is my, my, like, my tuition money. I should, I should have the right to do what I want with my money. Um, but then I got convicted. Um, I was thinking about this when I realized, wait a second. This is not my money. This is God's money, right? He actually gave it to me as a gift. And when I start to think about, okay, this is not actually my money, but this is a gift from God, Wow, that completely shifted my paradigm. I started thinking, wow, okay, this is not actually my money, but a gift from God, and I can actually give back to God what He rightfully owns. So that really helped me a lot to realize yeah, this is about relationship, this is about giving back to a God who's given to me. And so I'll be honest with you guys again too. I'm still struggling to t- with tithing and stuff like that. I didn't know like 5%, 10%, 20% all kinds of stuff, but uh, I really appreciate Mosaic's stance on how it's not about the 10% rule, it's about giving everything, um, and they really stewarded me well in her saying that, um, but I just choose 10%, because I, really, I can't really understand right now, and I'll probably change later, um, and I'm still struggling, but I'm still getting there, and yeah, I just really encourage you guys that we can work on this together, so, Matt. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. Thanks
0: for sharing uh, your heart and being willing to be vulnerable with us. I think what we are going to learn with each of these things that we explore as a church, each of these six areas in which we know that God wants us to grow, is that transformation is not going to occur on our own, right? So now Kevin has invited you into his struggle, right? And Kevin invites us to help him along in this journey. We're seeing that God is transforming your heart, and I think Kevin mentioned it several times that it was this this struggle to figure out what do I do with my money? And then God shifted it to know it's God's money. What happened, Kevin, was there was a heart transformation. You went from thinking of it as your money to thinking of it as God's money. That's why stewardship is about the heart. Jesus really doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. So I want us to ask ourselves two questions. What is God saying to us from this passage and what are we going to do about it? What is God saying to us and what are we going to do about it? I have three simple uh, applications. There may be other applications that the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart about, and that's cool. Uh, but three things. Uh, Daniel, if you could come up, uh, maybe one other person to help Daniel pass something out. I've got uh, I've got three things on the screen here. Three applications uh, that I want us to consider. The first is we want to read together as a church family, this book called the treasure principle. I know we passed out this book last December. So if you've already got a copy, that's cool, but we're passing out about one per family. So Daniel and Kevin, why don't you guys pass that out? Raise your hand. If you did not get a copy of this book last year, we're going to make sure every family gets one. If we run out, that's cool. And we will buy more and and give them to you. All right. So this book is called the treasure principle and the basic idea of this book is very simple. Randy Alcorn is the author, and he sums, he sums up this idea about money this way and, and giving this way. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Um, what I want to challenge you guys to do is to read this book between now and the end of the year. We're entering into a time of the year when, as Americans, we are tempted to think a whole lot about stuff. Thanksgiving kicks off the Christmas season, right? And, and then it's all about giving and getting and, and, and you know, those uh, those gag gifts that you give away at those parties and all the different stuff that you do. And we're very focused on stuff. What I want to do is to challenge us as a family to use this time when it's very natural to be focused on stuff, to instead to be focused on our savior, to be focused on heart transformation. So I wanna challenge every family here to read this book together by the end of the year and to have conversations with those in your missional family about the book, this treasure principle. Really only take you a couple hours to read it. It's not, a, it's not a hard read. You could probably go home and read it tonight. Okay, so first off, to read the treasure principle. Second, I want to challenge us as a family to give regularly to God through Mosaic. What does that mean? Uh, I'm glad Kevin actually raised the point. He's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to get 5% of my income, 10%, 20%. Uh, and the answer is yes. Jesus wants everything that we have. Everything that we are. There is no percent, in my opinion... And people debate this. I don't believe there is a percent listed in the New Testament that says this is how much you are supposed to give to God. A lot of times people get the idea of 10% from tithing in the Old Testament where God required the Israelites to give a certain portion of their income. People who talk about tithes, though, frequently don't realize that the tithe in the Old Testament, there were multiple tithes. And when you annualize them, it meant about giving 30% of your income on an annual basis to God. So we want to talk about a tithe. We're talking about thirty percent of your income, which everyone is like, "Whoa, hold on, slow, hit the brakes on that." Um, and I understand that that would that would be difficult, but that's what ancient Israel did. That's what God demanded of them. So in that context, it was a very just and gracious demand. But what Jesus does in the New Testament. You see, ushers in something called grace and grace always raises the bar. You see, there were these guys called the Pharisees. We talked a lot about them when we studied the gospel of Mark and they were counting out their pennies, right? They're like, I'm gonna give 30%, but not a penny more. Not a penny more. Jesus is gonna get the bare minimum, right? I don't wanna give God more than I have to. And that was the focus. But in the New Testament, Jesus gives us grace. And he looks at people like, the, like the, the poor widow woman who gives her last two pennies. And he says, she's a hero of the faith because she has given it all. Because under God's new paradigm of grace, God wants our heart. He wants our all. So the answer to the question of how much you're supposed to give is you're supposed to give your heart. And when you give your heart, you don't get caught up in dollars and cents or percentages, you give radically, you give sacrificially, you give generously. And you don't give like you're paying a bill and you figure out what you got left over and then you give that to God through the church. No, first you say, God, what are you laying on my heart to give? This is my first, before I even cover the rent, what do you want me to give? And then I'll figure everything else out after that. That's not the way we tend to think. But God is challenging us as a family give, I believe that that can happen in a lot of ways. You can give to the homeless guy on the street. Sonia and I support uh, an orphan in Africa um, that we've been privileged to help. Sonia's been doing this for many years before I I, uh, met her. A girl named Rahel um, that we help support, that we help take care of. But the primary way that God's people give is through his church, through the family of God. How do we know that? Well, that's what we see in this passage. People have a relationship with one another. They view the group as more important than the individual. They view the collective as more important than their own interests. So they give deeply. They give generously. They give radically to advance God's mission through his church. Because this early church, this first church, is so excited about this idea that Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming back. They want to spread the word. So they're like, let's give to one another. Let's, let's take care of, of promoting this mission and this agenda of God's coming kingdom. So I want to challenge you, if you're not giving, to give regularly. If you're already giving, ask God how much you should be giving. Because maybe, just maybe, you've settled into a routine, and the Holy Spirit wants to come along and shake that routine up. Because it's not about the money, it's about your heart. And he says, hey, you've been letting these idols camp out in your heart, and I think it's time to boot them out. The way we boot them out is by unclenching our fists and giving it all to Jesus. Third, I wanna ask you to consider giving to our new heights offering. This is simply the name of our Christmas offering. We did another offering last year. We called it Ignite. Um, We're we're, we're gonna take up a Christmas offering and our goal is to raise $2,500 in this offering. We're gonna be taking this offering up over the next six weeks. So we'll have envelopes that say new heights on them. If you want to put it in the envelope starting next week, you can throw it in the offering plate with your regular offering. You can give it online. There's a special link on our website to give. We are using this money to advance the cause of mission, to support some of our our part-time staff who who really work for Peanuts here. Um, last year, I was so excited. We challenged our people to give a thousand dollars. We're not a big church, but we challenged us to give a thousand dollars, and we ended up giving seven thousand. Um, I was blown away by that. Um, I have no idea what God's gonna do this year, but I do know that he doesn't really care about the amount, he cares about changing our hearts. He cares about transforming us. So I wanna challenge you to pray how God would have you to give to this Christmas offering. Now I wanna end with our triangle. We've talked about the triangle every week of this sermon series, up, in, out. Up is our relationship with God, in is our relationship with one another, out is our relationship with the community, with the world. Giving, stewardship is about all three of these. We give, and that's up. We give as an act of worship to God. In, we give to one another. We take care of the church. We take care of the family. We give because we're in relationship to one another. And then out, we give to spread the message, to spread this good news that reshaped this first church. I'm excited that about 13% of our budget as a church goes to spread this good news. Spreading this good news throughout New York City, throughout North America, and throughout the world. We give because we believe that we have a message worth sharing. And let me end with this. Same idea we started with. Stewardship is about heart transformation. So as we reflect upon this idea of giving this week, as we, we enter into Thanksgiving, which is, has really become, maybe unfortunately, just the kickoff to the materialism of the Christmas season. As we enter into this season... Let's think about the antidote to greed, and that's giving. Let's think how is God seeking to transform us together because we are family, because we are united by the blood of Jesus, so we operate under a different set of rules. We are a countercultural community living in the middle of New York City. We are characterized by giving instead of greed. This is who God calls us to be. He calls us to be people who imitate our Redeemer in our capacity and our willingness to give. Let's close our eyes and bow our head for prayer. Our band is...